Hey everyone, this is Wayne with the Greenfield Podcast, and my guest today is Priya Sahani, my co-founder in starting the Grassroots Animal Rights Network, Direct Action Everywhere. And Priya and I have gone through some absolutely absurd challenges together, and frankly, everything I've learned over the last 10 years, I've learned together with her. We walked into a factory farm together for, for the first time in DXC history and exposed some of the lies that Whole Foods was telling. We learned about some of the Jedi mind tricks the industry plays on people, even people in the animal rights movement. And we also learned about why we should have so much hope, because there's something in the act of rescuing animals that transformed both of us, and I think has the potential to transform the world. But without further ado, here's Priya Sahani. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. What's up? <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because <laughs> I, don't know. It's, I don't know what's funny, but I'm excited to be here. It's funny that we're having a recorded conversation. That's what's funny. <laughs> yeah, I guess that is funny. <laughs> I think people have been saying for years that it would be fun to be a fly on the wall in a conversation between you and I because we've had so many intense, absurd conversations over the years. And now you're all finally going to get a chance to... Come into the wild world of Priya and Wayne. Yeah, I guess this is the Wayne and Priya show. <laughs> um, yeah, no, but I, I wanted to talk to you. I mean, I definitely wanted to talk to you at some point, regardless of the context. But I want to talk to you right now because we're about to go into preliminary hearings mm-hmm. in Sonoma County. And, you know, I, how, how many felonies do we have now? It's kind of... <laughs> Well, I have eight. Yeah, I they, can't keep track of your felonies. Yeah, so Priya's got eight felonies, and um, you know we're laughing about it, but this is serious business. This yeah. is potentially years in prison, but um, it's also an incredible opportunity, and and that's why you know I wanted to have you on because you and I have talked about the importance of open rescue and been discussing and debating and and been inspired by the potential of open rescue for years, and it's really coming to a head in these cases, and. Well, it's certainly scary, and I know your family and my family, and even you and I, I mean, there have been times where both of us have thought, holy shit, what have I, what have I gotten myself involved in? Like, what is going on here? I mean, I'm, you know, you got eight felonies. I think I've got a dozen or so <laughs> yeah. um, years in prison. Obviously, all the reputational damage, people accusing us of all these terrible things, um, most of which are not true. Some of them sadly are true. <laughs> I, you know, in a sense, we, we, we are animal rights activists, for example. I guess that's not a terrible thing to be accused of. So it's, it's, it's a lot of stress and a lot of burden. And, you know, actually, this is kind of embarrassing, too. I don't even remember when preliminary hearings are. I think they're like September 17th to 21st, something like that. We'll, yeah. get, we'll get to you the exact dates later if you're interested. But the point I'm trying to make is it's an incredible opportunity, too. The amount of sympathy we've obtained the amount of media coverage you've obtained from these open rescue and these charges, I should say open rescues, because we've done dozens of them and rescued hundreds of animals from these terrible places. The amount of institutional change, right? Getting a couple cities to pass right to rescue resolutions. Like right to rescue is a thing for dogs and cats. Everybody understood. You don't leave a dog in a hot car. That's messed up. And if there's a dog in a hot car, you just fucking break that window, take that dog out. But no one had thought about this in the context of the literally billions of animals think about you know it, this is not an exaggeration billions of chickens alone that are dying of heat exhaust because they're they're so massive they're so crowded and it is so hot they're literally dying 
from heat exhaustion in the same way a dog would. And these are animals with the same feelings that our dog has. And this is going to be an incredible opportunity for us to raise attention to that issue and make sure no one forgets what's happening to those animals. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about that case and how you're feeling about it mm-hmm. and about your crazy lawyer, Chris Andrea. Mm-hmm. Chris is great. Yeah, isn't he? Yeah. Well, do you remember that meeting we had with Chris and we came in and here's this like extremely prestigious, high status yeah. lawyer. He's famous. <laughs> he's represented celebrities. He's got a nice suit on. And he's just like, you guys rock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every time he calls me, he's like, what trouble are you up to? I know. And he calls me his favorite client. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And he's, I mean, for those of you who don't know, Chris Andrian represented Jared Garcia. He's one of the most successful attorneys in California and one of the most well-known. And he's representing us free of charge, right? He's not asking for a dime because he yeah. just supports the cause. And this is someone who historically has not been an animal rights supporter, but he just understands the suffering of animals, and he understands when people are just standing up for justice. So anyway, so I want to I talk about that case and how you're feeling about it as we go into prelims. Prelims, for those of you who don't know, are preliminary hearings. It's when the prosecution presents its evidence against us for the first time and, and asks a judge basically to say, these folks are potentially guilty of a crime, and we should proceed with the trial. But given that, um, you know, for those of you who've been hiding under a rock, given that we're both co-founders of DXE, um, I want to I want to just go back in the history of DXE and talk about what we've learned over the years and go through some of the important historical events in DXE history. Oh, does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. All right, cool. Let's do it. So, I mean, how are you feeling? I feel. I mean, I think about. I don't think about the case every single day in that I'm I'm worried or scared huh. because I do think intuitively. I I I do see it as an opportunity, and um, the fear that I have is. I don't want to say it's non-existent because there is fear on, on many levels, but I, I think I see the importance of, uh, like we all do. I think we all know that this is an incredibly important opportunity looking back a few years ago, even when have we really had the chance to talk about animal rights, open rescue in a sub, you know, substantive way. We really haven't. And this is going to be really important opportunity for us to bring all of that. And, um, yeah, I think I'm excited and, the nervousness comes from uncertainty, but um, I think mostly it's excitement, honestly, because I, yeah. with everything going on in the world, I feel so much pain, uh, you know, and I think we, a lot of activists feel this all the time, but when it comes to animals, that pain is just growing with everything that happens, whether it's fires, climate change. I just think about like, well, if I'm experiencing this pain, imagine what they're experiencing. It's, it has to be a billion times worse. Yeah, and certainly what we're being prosecuted for, one of the reasons I think one of the reasons we're excited about this is because that is exactly what's happening in these farms in Sonoma County. Awful, evil places that, frankly, the government's own veterinary experts have concluded that these animals were going through fucking hell. Yeah. Which is what every single one of them they, they took from us, you know, and we'll talk about that in a second. They ultimately had to, to euthanize them because they said they were in such bad shape. But a lot of people listening to this probably have no idea what we're even talking about. So let's, let's talk about the actual charges. And I don't think we have to go into too, de- too much detail yet because I want to, I want to build to this point from the past. And I think a lot of people don't know about the yeah. long history. It's not, it's not like we just went from zero to mass open rescue at sunrise. Yeah. There was a long buildup and 
And for a long time, not even doing open rescues, just talking about doing open rescues, or at least not publicly talking about open rescues. But um, what, what exactly are you being charged with? And I don't even mean the legal charges because you might have forgotten. And frankly, even I'm a lawyer. It's a little embarrassing. I think I've forgotten what I'm charged with in this case. Oh, gosh. I, I'm never going to get a client after this. <laughs> Someone's going to listen to this and say, like, this lawyer doesn't Wayne's even know what the hell he's being charged with. No, but t- tell me. I actually don't even remember. What was your role at, like, Sunrise and Petal in the Poultry? What were you doing? I was live streaming. Oh, that's right. So I was okay. documenting uh, the conditions. This is at Petal in the Poultry? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I never held... And, you know, I held a chicken or I, I, yeah, I barely, I was literally just documenting the, the situation. I was looking at yeah. what was happening and I was just providing people who are on live stream with an, with an eye into what's happening at this uh, mass open rescue. Yeah. And, and tell folks about what Pen on the Poultry was in some of the things you saw and, and, and we'll go into a little bit of why we did it too. But first, you know, what did we actually see unfold that day? I mean, what did you see? Well, Petaluma Poultry is the largest chicken killing operation in California. And the things that DXC investigators found there was death, mm-hmm. disease, um, horrific suffering. And yeah, I, I, I'll, honestly, I'll never forget um, when I walked inside while I was live streaming. And within minutes, like not, maybe not even a minute, we found dead bodies. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, how do you justify that? And I think that is what we're being, being charged with. Yeah, That is why we are being... It's, it's, you could just sense it. They, they felt like they're being exposed because they were. Yeah. How do you walk inside of a facility which talks about, you, you know, which feigns itself as being um, organic or trying to rep- create this image that they care about animals when they clearly don't? And how can you even pretend to do that when you have people who are walking inside and within minutes, like finding dead bodies of animals, finding animals who, finding chickens who can't, can barely even walk uh, to get food or water. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's a place of unimaginable suffering and you, you don't need, I mean, you don't even need to watch more than a few minutes of being inside this place to understand that. Most of the people listening to this have probably never had that experience or really even comprehended how you could pull it off. So what, what do you think about? I mean, you've gone into factory farms now Gosh, I don't know, at least, probably at least a dozen times, maybe dozens of times. So what are you thinking about as you walk into one of these places? And, and for those of you who don't know, you know, we don't ask for permission because, frankly, none of these corporations will give you permission. And Petaluma Poultry is owned by Purdue Farms, one of the largest agribusiness conglomerates in the nation and one of the most powerful agribusiness conglomerates. And for a long time, these businesses have done a very good job of holding very, very dark secrets. They don't want anyone to come in. So you know there's likely to be something in here that no one has seen before. You know that there are very powerful corporations and people who don't want you to go in, but you also know there are gonna be animals there, including animals that you have deep connections to. Because both of us, you know, I mean, like a lot of people, frankly, not just in the animal rights, just a lot of human beings, both of us have a deep personal connection to animals, and it's hard. It is fucking hard to see animals suffer. So like, what are you thinking when you walk into one of these places and what, what motivates you to do it? And maybe even specifically, what were you thinking, if you can remember, when you walked into Petaluma Poultry, this massive, but also dilapidated. I mean, one of the weird things about this facility is it honestly just kind of looked like a junkyard. Yeah. You remember there was just trash strewn yeah. around on the ground? And 
in the marketing at yeah. Amazon and, and Whole Foods when they've sold Petaluma poultry products. They even give the chickens names, Rocky yeah. and Rosie, free range chicken. And they have this tagline, chickens raise the way they're meant to be raised or living the way they're meant to live. I don't remember the exact terminology. You can go to their website. But this is the largest free range organic producer in the nation, one of the largest agribusiness conglomerates. They're saying all these nice things about animals. We're about to expose the secret. We're about to see vividly what it's actually like. And for those of you who don't know, there had actually been whistleblowers prior to this mass action, which included hundreds of people going to the farm, who had delivered video and photo evidence of the absolute brutal abuse inside this farm. And we had delivered this to the authorities and said, hey, this is a violation of law. Like, you're calling us criminals. We have been telling you for months and years. Like, and you were involved in this. You were the one who sent all these reports to authorities all across the nation saying, hey, remember that proposition we all passed, like, back in 2008? And they they had no idea what I was And they didn't even know what you were talking about. Yeah. And They didn't even know what you were talking about. What the F? Yeah. So it's just, it's such a head trip, the injustice and stupidity of this all. Yeah. And you're, you know, there's... and it's funny because that day I didn't even walk into any farms. Like I was just there, you know, I was there as a police liaison yeah. to talk to police. But you actually saw these things and were yeah. live streaming. So what is going through your head in that moment when it feels like this facade, this illusion this industry has been putting up, it's about to be crumbling. It's about to crumble to the ground. So yeah. it's a combination of things. But anyways, go ahead. It's definitely a combination of feelings because, you know, it, I mean, especially for people who are in a position of leadership, you feel the sense of responsibility and on many levels. One, you want to make sure that the operation, like this mission that we're on, uh, happens properly in that we successfully expose what's happening. And I think there is a certain level of excitement in that because these corporations get away with so much, especially Amazon, which is, I mean, I don't even need to say (laughs) that much about Amazon. Um, and, and Jeff Bezos and these billionaires who are responsible for, you know, destroying life on earth. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an excitement because uh, they've been getting away with it for so long and we are unveiling what's happening behind closed doors. And I still remember, I mean, it's not in this um, particular action, I think obviously I, I felt this way, but the first time when, when we walked into the Whole Foods Farm, you know, the first DXC's first open rescue, I still remember, and it's, it just makes me think about how naive I was. I remember feeling so betrayed. Like, mm-hmm. I was like, I can't believe that these corporations put out billboards and, and, you know, have all these signs and have all this advertising and they can so easily get away with all this. It's just like, you're just shocked. And you, and that shock over time, you know, going inside of these facilities gets like, I mean, it's obvious. It's like we know what these corporations are doing. But there's this feeling of like, I can't believe people. Are you looking at this? I just want, you know, we just want to show the whole world and say, can you like, can you believe what these corporations are getting away with? So there's that. But then there's a lot of sadness, too, because you, I know that I'm going to be seeing a lot of animals suffering. And yeah, there's just uh, there's there's no feeling that can really capture that. It's just yeah. You just feel so helpless. Like, you, mm-hmm. we, and even with the amount of people we had, you know, you feel helpless because corporate power has mechanized these animals and turned them into objects. And we're at the when we're doing these actions, we're at, we're we're basically not only exposing what's happening inside of these facilities, but we're in a 
in a place where we're seeing these animals which have been objectified and we're bringing them to life and showing people that these are animals who, who need to be cared for. Look at the suffering that, they're, uh, that they've been subjected to. And um, yeah, it's very emotional. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of different emotions. But I, I honestly felt really good because there were so many people next to me, so yeah. many people who believe that and have that vision that um, the fear that you, know, that you can have when you know that there's going to be police presence, when you know that um, you might get arrested, uh, mm -hmm. it's really helpful to have people next to you who are hand in hand saying, hey, we're, we're in this together. And I definitely felt that. Um, at Petaluma Poultry. Yeah, I, I think having the, the kind of friends and allies next to you is absolutely crucial. And the greatest and most powerful way to overcome fear is through power of movements. You know, there's something about being in a movement that gives you the strength you need to keep going. And, and that's a big part of the reason we started this because yeah. frankly, even just speaking out, even just saying, even just saying I'm vegan, you know, for a lot of people, that's tough. And for you and I, I think at points in our lives, it's tough. Both of us have had tough family situations, workplace situations. I still remember that story you told of after you joined DXC of being in a group meeting at the Tenderloin Housing Clinic. Yeah. Right? Where this is a, a low-income housing project. It's a very social justice-oriented organization, but they were serving dead animals one time in the staff and you, I, there's even a photo of yeah. you like speaking <laughs> out and it's just, but you're able to do those things that otherwise seem really hard because you have people around you. And I remember when we first walk into Petaluma Farms, which is different than Petaluma yeah. Culture. This is an egg farm that sells eggs to Whole Foods and Amazon. The eggs are called Judy's Family Farm. There's a little girl, that, like a chicken, looks like her pet chicken. It's just one chicken too in a grassy field. And it's, it's complete nonsense. It's, and I've been telling you all, because I've been doing this for a while, so, yeah. like the anger and shock you felt, that had been like a slow burn for me for the last 10 years, because yeah. we did this in what started doing this in early 2014 mm -hmm. and then released it in 2015, maybe even 2013. I don't even remember when we started this. But I felt partly responsible for this shit, because I'd been at the University of Chicago Law School back in the early 2000s when yeah. all this stuff started, and we started saying, oh, if we just told people, if we gave people transparency about what happens in these abusive facilities and people will make the personal choice to choose humane, yeah. you know, bigger cages, better deaths, and eventually maybe even going plant-based. And instead what happened is it became a massive corporate marketing tool yeah. where big companies like Amazon and Whole Foods use people's ethical values to cause more exploitation, yeah. to just sell them more expensive products that would feed back into the system and build bigger farms, invest more into animal agriculture, while deceiving people about what they're actually doing. And you all had never seen this. I had seen this shit. Yeah. Because I had been walking into, like the first slaughterhouse I walked to, into, Chapetti Villanam, was a small scale, you know, local, humane slaughterhouse. And that place was hell. Mm. Like the first time I'm walking to that place and I saw those little lambs, I mean, little lambs, like just shivering in terror in the corner, like just blood everywhere. I mean, just slaughter itself, slaughter itself. And and the knowledge that you are about to be slaughtered. You know, how many people can say, I don't even know if you and I can say this. I mean, I could say this maybe borderline a little bit. How many people can say they've been in a situation where they thought, I'm about to be murdered. I'm about to be killed in the next few minutes of my life. You know, some of us have felt afraid. You know, think about, like both of us have been assaulted by random yeah. people and by 
cops and yeah. you know animal agriculture people and that's scary like it's not a good feeling to know someone's about to, to punch you or slap you or is going to pull a gun on you or whatever it is but to know i am very likely about to die yeah that is honestly one of the worst forms of emotional suffering just suffering period any animal can experience and that's what every animal is experiencing i don't care how small or how humane the slaughterhouse is and they know because they see ahead of them the animals that are screaming and dying, they smell ahead of them. The blood that's on that concrete floor, they know I'm about to die. And that alone triggers an immense amount of fear. And just to think that for so long, these companies, and it's, it's not even just the companies. I think you can blame capitalism and corporations, but it's also just almost a collective psychosis. Yeah. You know, where we have denied the reality of what animal slaughter is. Yeah. And, and that's got to change. Yeah, that made me... Uh, tear up just thinking about that because yeah you're right we all have felt fear and I think it's always in the back of my mind and maybe yours too probably definitely yours just thinking about animals being killed and yeah just you know when you connect with animals on a one-on-one especially at a slaughterhouse or at a farm like you feel it you feel their fear Mm -hmm. and that is probably a really powerful motivating force because the the fear that I felt in the situations I've been in, it does not compare to, you know, what these animals, the fear that they, they feel sense on many different levels. And I don't know where I read this recently, but I, I read how we, we don't see the world, you know, objectively, we see it through a filter. And these corporations are really good at filtering how we see certain things. And when it comes to humane meat, and when it comes to, you know, selling us anything, really, they're really, really tactful and just selling us uh hey you're doing something really good and we know this because we know whole foods we know amazon and and how how much money they pour into their advertising in justifying something that just cannot be justified yeah no i think that i mean there's there's a physical reality to the universe that's that is true and i'm not saying there's nothing that's Mm -hmm. materially objective in the world but our experience of it is very much through a filter i mean even just our eyes you know what we see i mean this table that i'm sitting at this chair that i'm sitting on it's actually mostly empty space it's like a bunch of atoms and molecules (laughs) and in a sense i I was like it's kind of weird that if it's mostly empty space why can't i just put my hands you know but it is it's empty space and the reason we see it for what it is is because our brain and our eyes interprets things in a particular way and uh, but for the most part, our senses are are trying to get at something that's real. Yeah. And the problem is there's a lot of institutions out there that have a very strong incentive of distorting that entirely. Yeah. So whatever filter we're using to observe the world becomes, instead of a way to assess the reality of the world, it becomes a way to distort the reality yeah. of the world in and one of the ways they do that is by denying the consciousness of animals. Yeah. And, and, and they do this in, in superficial and more insidious and fundamental ways. But the superficial ways are just specific conditions that are not actually happening. So saying the animals are free range when they're not. But the deeper way that they're doing this is by distorting our, our recognition of the fact that the consciousness of animals is the same as ours. Yeah. In the same way that, you know, for years, and we talked about colonialism a couple couple days ago for years there were these powerful empires that went around terrorizing all these other human beings and 
they, they did a very good job of creating this ideology, this filter through which you could wipe out everyone on an entire continent, but you wouldn't recognize that there were beings here that suffered, that died, that had lives and hopes and dreams. And it's a big part of what we're trying to reverse. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know we talked about this too, but I think, well, this is why open rescue is so powerful because despite the distortions that they try so hard, I mean, and successfully get many people to believe, um, these distortions only work because of the uh, illusion of separation, mm -hmm. which uh, one of my favorite authors, Vandana Shiva, calls an intellectual architecture um, based on you know a distorted view of reality. When mm -hmm. when what what the truth is that we are all interconnected beings. What happens to animals? Uh, what happens to the you know what happens to plants? What happens to you know this earth? It is our responsibility. And open rescue breaks that illusion of separation, yeah. breaks those distortions because we are walking in and we can see and we can sense the fear and we can, and we can feel it on, in, in ways that it doesn't matter what Whole Foods and Amazon, like no matter what they do, they cannot deny that what's happening in front of, you know, what's happening in front of me is, is unconscious, you know, just horrible, horrific, terrifying. It's you cannot deny that. So that's why open rescue is so powerful because it it breaks the illusion of separation. It brings us to these places and it brings us closer to um, what for years people have been trying really hard uh, to keep out of our eyes, keep away from society. And that's why slaughterhouses and factory farms are so far away from where people live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that disconnect is is very, very real. And there are a lot of ways for us to overcome it, obviously, live streaming, communications, narratives, and the media. But one way is just to force a society to confront the reality of the situation in a court. And that's what courts are kind of designed for, for, for years, you know, at least the ideal of a courtroom. Obviously, there's massive failures in how justice is actually implemented in the court system. But still, the idea of a courtroom is where there's some dispute. We don't know what the truth is. Did this person commit the crime? Did this person actually steal from someone? Did this person break a contract? We go into the courtroom, we present our evidence in an objective way before a neutral panel of citizens, and we ask them to assess what the truth is. And even with all these nonsense filters, even with all the BS we've been fed by corporations and by our government about animals and the environment, our hope, and not just our hope, but, but our belief is that when people actually see what we saw, the objective reality, you know, the video footage, the photos, they will recognize what we have recognized, which is that their consciousness is the same as ours. When that bird is collapsed on the ground with a gaping hole in her side so deep you can see her bone and her flesh rotting as she's collapsed on the ground inside of Petaluma Poultry, when people see that bird crying out in pain and begging desperately for someone to help her, they will say, I want to help her too. And that's what we're going to find out in the next few months. And the first step is this preliminary hearing. So yeah, it's, uh, it's important. I'll never forget what Chris Andrian said. He's like, there's no way I can see uh, you know, a jury of 12 people all agreeing that you all are terrorists yeah. and that you all are doing something you know, that you need to go to jail for years. He's like, there's just no way. Yeah. And to the extent it's possible, it's because of corruption and you know corporate power and the resources that they have at their expense to uh get people to do their bidding for money but it, it's just like laughable yeah 
get them to do their bidding and that happens there there actually is enormous amount of corporate influence so yeah one of the weird things in the united states criminal justice system is that da's the people are prosecuting crimes and judges the people who are supposedly adjudicating crimes are themselves elected officials who to become elected need to take campaign contributions and the Sonoma County Farm Bureau is one of the biggest players in Sonoma County, this county we're being prosecuted in, and they throw a lot of money around. They, they threw money around in the context of the bill on 597E. Many of you have heard this yeah. statute that protects animals from starvation, and it was recently significantly weakened in a very secretive campaign by the Sonoma County Farm Bureau to say, no, we'd actually like animals to starve to death. We, we don't want any accountability in that regard. So, and, and so one of the ways they directly influence judges and prosecutors is through campaign contributions. It's, I mean, it's legalized bribery. It's weird because we look at China or India or countries in sub-Saharan Africa and we say their regimes are so corrupt. Look at this president who's getting all this bribery. It's like we do the same thing except it's legal. Yeah. Except it's legal. Yeah. I mean, what the hell? Like how can they give thousands of dollars to the person they're prosecuting? Are the person who, who's advocating for prosecution that is going to protect their company from transparency. But, but the other way they do this, and you know, this is unfolded in the context of this Utah case, the big Smithfield rescue, which we'll talk about in just a second. Because have you met Lily and Lizzie? I forget. It feels like I've met them, but I haven't. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, because, you know... I've seen so much, vi so many videos of them. I know. It feels like I've met them, but I haven't. It's weird, too, because every time I talk to Shaleen... Um, the guy at the the sanctuary, yeah. he always he always talks as if you're their mom. Like he's, because like, I almost think <laughs> like because I'm going to see them the next few weeks. Oh, I don't know if I told no, this. I'm going to see them. Oh. Lily and Lizzie are two piglets we rescued from Smithfield Foods, this massive factory farm. In fact, the largest pig farm in the nation in southern Utah. And I'm, I haven't seen them in a couple oh, of years now because of COVID. I'm going to go see them. But every time I talk to the sanctuary, they're always like, "When's Priya going to come see them?" Oh, I would love like to. Priya. You know, like they're always like Priya this, Priya that, and I'm like. So in my head, it's, you're a part of that rescue or part of the, the caretaking, but I guess you just did a lot of social media, so yeah. I feel that way. But anyways, um, I don't even know what I was saying now. I was just, oh, I was saying that, that case, which I'm also facing felonies on, thankfully you're not. Or maybe you're not thankfully, yeah. I don't know. I mean, but whatever it is, in that case, the, the other way they're, they're trying to distort reality and, and distort people's judgment isn't just through direct corporate influence, but it's by preventing the public and the jury from even hearing the reality. Yeah. So they, they filed a motion to prevent any discussion, even a word about animal cruelty or what's happening at the farm. And it's like, wait a minute, but this is the entire point. Yeah. This was the entire point. In fact, even Smithfield says this is the entire point. When you look at their complaint against us, their legal complaint and all the things they're saying, they're saying it's a defamatory campaign. They fabricated their evidence. They literally claimed that our rescue was an elaborate kind of theatrical scene that we planted, yeah. that we moved piglets from one site to the other, that we created this elaborate set with you know poop and blood and decomposing bodies just to smear them. This yeah. is their legal complaint against us. And now the prosecution is trying to say, you cannot, even if you testify yourself and your lawyers just want to mention why you were there, you cannot say a word. And it's like, if this actually is a neutral, objective tribunal that's trying to get at the truth, how can you silence yeah. an entire side, right? And, and the reason we know they're doing this, and this relates to the first factor as to why 
judgments are often distorted is because there's a lot of money. Yeah. Smithfield donates an enormous amount of money to the political system. They have jobs and taxes they're providing to the county. And oh. Yeah, when I think about Smithfield, I just think it's a legalized terrorist operation. Like, I don't know any better way to put that. If you look at every angle of the things that they're doing, and that makes me so mad because they call us terrorists. And yeah. it pisses me off because... No, if you look at what's happening here, companies like Smithfield are the epitome of, of terrorism. They're terrorizing animals. And you know this because you've been inside. I have seen hundreds of hours of footage from there, which honestly has given me PTSD. So I can't even imagine what you went through yeah. looking at the, you know, the, the, the piglets who are, can't even feed um, from their mothers because they're, instead of um, producing milk, their mothers are producing blood. Yeah. Their mothers can't even turn around to see their babies. Their babies are born in feces mm -hmm. and um, in these gestation crates that are prisons. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, th that's a glimpse, a blip of, you know, a glimpse of what they're doing to animals, um, what they're doing to the environment, you know, how they're destroying the environment that every Smithfield facility, like, I mean, honestly, every factory farm is just destroying the, the land it's around. Mm -hmm. And then they're terrorizing communities of color. Mm -hmm. So it's like, if you're going to talk, if you're, I mean, it's a projection. It's a huge projection. Yeah. And yeah, when I think about Smithfield, that's what I think about. I feel like they're terrorizing our, yeah, I mean, it's not just feeling. It's just they're terrorizing our planet. They're terrorizing animals. They're terrorizing com marginalized communities. And then they're using the, influence and power and resources that they have to project that onto us and that's just it's 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 ridiculous and um it's scary honestly the fact that they have so much power um and support because of how insidious this entire system is yeah and i guess it makes sense because it's based on a delusion right this entire the animal agriculture industry is based on a delusion that animals are the fact that even we talk about animals like this, we are animals. It's based on this, again, this illusion of separation. So it's based on this delusion that animals are property. So their response to all of this is going to be delusional too. Yeah, I think that's such a great way of putting it, that it's a case of corporate projection. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, it would almost be funny if not the fact that people are facing decades in prison yeah. and animals are suffering. It's kind of like a little kid who sees a shadow and is like, oh my gosh, there's a monster. And it's... It's like, no, no, it's, it's okay. It's just, it's just a shadow. You yeah. know, we all create them whenever there's light, there's shadows. You know, I mean, both of us have nieces. Yeah. You have a nephew too, but I've got young nieces and you could see, and they sometimes believe some silly things and it's really funny. You know, they get scared of something that clearly is not there scary. And if you look at kind of the first page of the prosecution summary in the Smithfield case, it says animal enterprise terrorism, right? Terrorism that we created terror in a corporation and just, Setting, let's, let's just set aside any filters or subjectivity. Yeah. The literal act that we undertook was we walked into a facility with no human beings at all in it when we walked into it. We saw some piglets that were, in one case, you know, collapsed on the ground, barely able to walk, and malnourished to the point that she was one-fourth normal size. In the other case, covered in blood, uh, unable to nurse properly because her mother's nipples were so shredded from constant pregnancy, forced insemination, nursing, that her nipples had all been shredded to the point they look like bloody alien creatures with tendrils coming out of the nipples instead of intact. I mean, I'm sorry to describe yeah, the vivid details. And we just took these 
two piglets to the vet and no one even knew about it for months, right? And until we publicly announced, hey, we did this investigation, removed two piglets. So how can it be the case that an investigation and removal of two dying piglets that no one even knows about is terrorism? While the company that is literally causing terror, not only to 1.2 million pigs, 1.2 million pigs, nearly as many pigs as the entire population of the state of Utah every single year, that has been caught in engaging in human trafficking, causing terror to human beings, shipped in from Asia, forced to work there without pay. Their families threatened if they reported it, and they really didn't have the capacity to report it because they're all people from Asia who don't speak English, and they're just being forced to work in these farms. A company that has physically assaulted its own workers, and this is not animal rights activists speaking or anti-factory farming activists, this is the National Labor Relations Board, you know, who has found that they violated labor law left and right and physically assaulted and terrorized their own workers to the point their workers were afraid to say, I need a better life and I cannot afford to live in the conditions and in the pay that I'm receiving from Smithfield. So they're causing terror to human beings and animals. And yet the prosecution is saying that we are the animal enterprise terrorists. And, and the other funny thing about that is how is an enterprise terrorized yeah like it's a company yeah. it's not a you know a company is not a person there's a difference between this massive multinational conglomerate and a human being or animal but the prosecution seems to have forgotten that there is a difference between this fictitious legal entity that's driven by and organized to create profit and the human beings and animals who live on this earth it's weird yeah it is very strange some I weird mean- stuff yeah, I know we don't like the word gaslighting, but I think the one place we can use it is for corporations, corporate okay. gaslighting, because it's like, what are you, I mean, it's, yeah, they're, they're, that's what they're engaged in. And I don't know if you know this author, Arundhati Roy, but recently she wrote this article where she's like, we, we live in a world where war is, has become peace, where left is right, black and white. And she talks about this in the context of the United States, um, you know, bringing peace to other countries when really it's terrorism, it's, it's war. And that's kind of what's happening here too, right? Yeah. Like there's, everything is, is, is the opposite now. Mm-hmm. They're, Smithfield, these companies are calling animal rights activists who don't have weapons, who don't have, I mean, we, don't, we, didn't, we literally had cameras going inside of these facilities and we took animals out and we brought them to the vet. That is terrorism. And what they're doing is, uh, you know, um, not, then yeah, I think we live in a very, we live in different worlds. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you're right. I, I think it's, it's really interesting that the implements of torture they have, they're actually implements yeah. of violence and suffering. Things like bolt guns, yeah. blades, even the gestation chambers, crates. even the crate itself. It, it looks like a torture device. I mean, it's like this, it almost feels like this claw, this metal claw that is grabbing this poor mother pig who's going to be trapped their entire life. And on the other hand, we have baby bottles and heating blankets. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, if you think a baby bottle and a heating blanket is terrorism and a bolt gun and, you know, gas chambers are legitimate enterprise, then uh, I think you need some, some help. Yeah. (laughs) I think you need some help. Um, yeah, it's weird, but, but I will say, I mean, it even makes me even more motivated. The absurdity of the situation makes me even more motivated. Just go ride into court and 
and speak our truth. Because when we speak our truth, even in places like Sonoma County, frankly, even in Beaver County, and we've both been to Beaver County. This is where Smithfield's big farm is. Did you end up talking in the locals? I guess you were, were you there at that subway when that local? Yeah, 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 I was there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even, I feel like even that guy. Yeah. There's, uh, there's, what was he saying to you all? He's saying something ridiculous. Oh, right? I have to remember this. Um, he's saying something really stupid. Yeah, he was saying something really stupid. He was just making fun of animal rights activists and. Yeah. There's some line. Oh gosh, yeah, opinion. there was one yeah. line. I, I'll remember soon. Right. No, no, no. It was pretty funny. But I feel like the reason people say these weird things, it's kind of like when someone confronts you about something you know yeah. is wrong and you kind of, your words stumble out of your mouth because you feel bad and you're trying to come up with some contrived explanation for why. So like, you know, if you left the dishes out and someone says, yeah. did you leave the dishes out? You're like, uh, uh, uh yeah, it was kind of like that situation. But I've had experiences in Beaver County that are even better than that, where it's not even so much someone stumbling. They're actually just legit saying, you're right. Yeah. And I know our entire county, our way of life depends on this massive corporation. But I've reached the conclusion, how can you not when you just walk out your front door and you can smell the yeah. death and the suffering, you know, 10 miles away from Circle Four Farms when they step outside their homes. Even other farmers have filed legal complaints because yeah. they step outside their homes and it's so bad they can't even breathe yeah. so they go right back inside just recently rocky and i rocky's an amazing activist we went to i think a few months ago we went to um uh just talk just to talk to residents who live around a slaughterhouse and i will never forget this one family that we met i mean honestly every one of them had something to share but one of them talked about how they're you know this was honestly i started crying because it was so it just shows you the ways in which we in which factory farming really does affect every, you know, everything and everyone. Um, this mother, she was talking about how she lives there and how um, her uh, her kids come over once in a while because um, she visits her parents who live there. And she says that they can't sleep at night because they start killing the pig, uh, the, killing the pigs, mm. and she can hear them screaming. So they sleep with earplugs on. Jesus. And her dog cries while those pigs are are screaming, mm-hmm. and. Because of that, um, the grandparents who live there, actually, their sleep cycle is all messed up, so they don't sleep when the pigs are being killed. Just the fact that they don't sleep while the pigs are being killed, it's such a, you know, mundane thing, but, like, in many ways, it's like they don't sleep because these pigs are being killed because they can hear their screams. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you can see that impact and how it's like, it, yeah, and, and, and these people who I believe they eat animals, I didn't straight up ask them, but, mm-hmm. but that contradiction, even in that contradiction that, that even when they're eating animals, they see there's something horrible about this system, horrible about factory farming, and they want to support the people who are trying to fight it. And mm-hmm. they said, what can we do? We want to help you. Yeah. And I felt like they're my people. They are. Yeah. And, and, and this is, I mean, again, one of the reasons we started DXC was to move away from this consumer framing. Not that, you know, we should we should say that eating animals is okay. The vision of the world we have is one where we eat delicious, sustainable, plant-based meats, yeah. where no one has to hurt any animal in any of the food they're eating, but also recognizing that there's a systemic problem. Yeah. And in the same way that you wouldn't blame a dog who's been beaten and abused, or even just trained, even if they haven't been abused, but trained to fight and attack another dog. You know, so for example, we, we share custody of a, of a pit bull, Lisa. Who's she's she's amazing. She's a little love and the, 
the best little creature in the world, other mm -hmm. than our other companions. But Joan and Oliver, shout out to both of you too because mm -hmm. you're awesome. We don't want them to get jealous. It's okay. Lisa's the oldest, so she can, <laughs> she can get a little bit. She gets a seniority. She gets, yeah, she gets some. Yeah, that's the way it is in Asian families. The oldest always gets yeah. the best. Uh, no, but we got, we've got a pit bull who attacks other dogs, and I would never blame her for that. Yeah. You know, that's just what she was trained to do. And so, and in all of us, it's, I don't even think she's inferior to other dogs. In many ways, it's kind of a weird way of putting it, but she's superior because the indoctrination and training, even the genetic breeding that led her to be aggressive towards dogs, she did what she was instructed to do. You know, this is what she was taught to do. This is what she was bred to do. And she does that well, yeah. which is attack other dogs. And despite all that, she's and despite still, all that, she's a lover. She still she's, made friends with Oliver. And she still made friends with other dog, Oliver. But in the same way that all of us, I mean, it's kind of a miracle that anyone is able to kind of detach themselves and, and frankly, free ourselves from this system of indoctrination that has taught us to, to deny the consciousness of animals. Because from the day we're born, that's what we're taught from the day that we first eat solid food and move away from our mother's milk or from formula, we're taught this is what we eat. This is the sustenance we have. And it's kind of a minor miracle that anyone's able to overcome that. I really so. believe that miracle. I know this is going to sound really sappy. So people on the podcast are going to be like, oh my gosh, Priya is one of those people. But I really believe that power is love. Mm. I think that power is love because when I think back to what really awakened me to take action... I mean, there's, there's many things, but it's, it's feeling that like love for my dog, Mimi, mm -hmm. and just putting her in that position and seeing her eyes and like imagining her being hurt. Yeah, yeah I, I, I couldn't. And I was like, I would protect her. And hence, I would protect other animals yeah. and all vulnerable people. And mm -hmm. I think that power is love. And I think that that is why people can, despite all of these, uh, all of the ways in which, you know, societal norms and corporate influence can um, delude us into thinking that animals are objects, animals are food. There are people who break that cycle in, in many situations where you're kind of surprised. Like, I, there's some people where I'm like, I, I don't, how, how are you an animal rights activist, you know? Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. And this is kind of tacky, but have you seen Moana? Yeah. I think I did with you like oh, gosh, years ago. <laughs> you love movie. that movie. I know. I've watched it like a hundred times. And it's, <laughs> I'm not even going to say I'm embarrassed anymore because <laughs> it's a kid's movie. It's, I think, a Disney or a Pixar movie, but it's such an amazing movie. But, and I don't want to give away the plot, but you know, it's, a, it's about a, a little girl who is facing a world that's very bleak and desolate and that's dying, you know, kind of like our world. <laughs> but the way she overcomes, and I don't think I'm giving away the plot, so don't worry, there's no spoilers here, is with the power of love. And it's, it's not just the power of love, though. It's recognizing there's love in all of us. Yeah. And even the, the beings on this earth that we think are most evil and the most corrupt and most selfish, that if we just believe they have love in them, and if we can tap into that, then that is the strongest force in the face of the universe. It really is. And I'm not saying other emotions don't play some role in movements. I mean, so like Bert Klanermans, this famous sociologist, has written that anger is the emotion of movements. I think that is true. There's a lot of value in it in honoring people's anger and understanding that anger is a part of what drives us. But at the end of the day, anger that's real, that's not just a fantasy, that's not just based on some resentment or jealousy that's not true and not, that's not objective, that's 
based on some insecurity. Anger that's real is based on love. Yeah. It really is. And it's it's almost the flip side. Yeah. And and the foundation of it, if you have anger without love, it dissipates. Yeah. It falls apart. It's like a house of cards. Yeah. Well, anger grounded in love, not only does love provide the anchor for it, you know, so anger will always come back to it, but it sustains your ability and your motivation to act with anger over the long term. Yeah. Yeah, anger is like a door. It shows us something. And I actually will never forget this from the beginning of DXC because I think we were having a conversation about this and there was so much anger. And I just remember us talking to each other and other people and saying, we have to harness it. We have to harness this anger. And um, yeah, I think that's really powerful because I think I think in many ways the 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 challenges that movements face is how to how do we harness hang, anger in a way that helps us build and not destroy. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, we've seen this play out. I, I'll never forget. <laughs> we were at Chipotle. I mean, there's so many incidents like this with Wayne, but like, oh. I remember this guy like screaming at you, like, you know, you were doing outreach or maybe, uh, live streaming him or something. No, we didn't have live streams back then, but you were just talking to him doing outreach. And this guy started off like bacon, like, fuck you. And like, I'll do whatever I want. And I think I'd like wandered off cause I had other responsibilities during the protests and I was so shocked when I saw you like five minutes later shaking his hand, maybe even hugging him. And he's like, no, no, dude, like, you're right. Like, yeah, like, I love my dog. Like, that's a good point, man. Like, I was just like, what happened? And it reminds me why anger is so important, because I would much rather take an angry person than somebody who walks by with a lot of apathy, because you I mean, there's you can't there's nothing to inspire. There's nothing to motivate. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. My experience is that the people who are the trolls, the people who harass you at protests, for example, tend to be people who feel the most guilt and have some inner contradiction, hypocrisy that they're trying to reckon with. And it comes out backwards, you know, with this antipathy, this this anger towards the movement when really they're angry at themselves. And if you kind of give them a chance to unpack that a little bit, then oftentimes they turn pretty quickly. Yeah. Hap- I mean, it happens all the time. Were you there at that protest? Actually, not very far from here in Berkeley, near the Gilman Whole Foods. There used to be like a burger joint there. Where there's this woman who was like a social justice advocate. I feel like you were there. Mm. But she was like screaming at us and saying, how dare you? Do you know this is free range? Do you know everything I do to help the earth and the animals? And most of us, and honestly, including me, to some extent, we're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. This woman's... I think I remember. She's off the rails. She's like, and uh, but by the end of the conversation, this was a case where she literally hugged me at the end of it, and she was because I said, and and the key thing for me was I. When someone's angry, you can stay at the surface level and just fight back their anger with your own anger or humiliation or mocking them or whatever it is and saying you're ridiculous, or you can really try and understand where they're coming from and get at the root of it. Yeah, you know, and for her it was this sense of insecurity about her being a good person. And that's true of a lot of people who get angry about animal rights. Yeah. They're not angry because they reject the message. They're angry because they feel that they're not living up to that message. And they don't know how to get out of it. And they don't know how to get out of it. And that's why it's so important to see the good in others. Yeah, because, no, absolutely. Because we've been there too. Yeah, I've, no, I've absolutely. Eaten, I've eaten animals and there's something that awakened inside of me. So if I treat somebody as if they're so different than me that nothing can change, then I think you know, that will be projected back at me. But I think in, in doing outreach, one of the most important things I've learned is most people have that in them. And yeah, if you approach them with that sort of understanding and um, 
and 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 try to see the good in them. I think you'll find it. Yeah, I agree. And it's I mean honestly, it's it's most powerfully evoked when there is some sort of direct action. So the anger you were saying the anger is a window, and I agree. And I think what the anger is a window into is love. Yeah. Right? Because if you truly love someone and they're being harmed, you'll be angry. Yeah. Right? And if you truly see some injustice in the world and it's real, you'll be angry. You know, there's there's like a lot of performative social justice work where people are honestly kind of fake tweeting some support for some movement and then you know it's kind of just for social status or they, they're saying it because everyone else is saying it. You can tell when it's not real. There's, yeah. there's no, and it's because they don't have the real connection to whatever the cause is. They're just saying it because it's convenient to do so. But when people say it and they mean it, you can feel it. Yeah. You can feel it in your bones and in their bones, especially when you see them in person. On Twitter, it's a little harder to distinguish, but when you're talking to someone, you can tell when they feel it in their bones. Yeah. And when someone reacts negatively, you can feel it in their bones. Like that woman at that burger joint, I don't even remember what it was called. This is so many years ago. They got so upset at us and saying, do you realize all the efforts we make? This is totally inappropriate for you to be doing to us. We're the ones who care about animals and how dare you? You know, and I could feel in her bones that she felt hurt by the idea that she was not helping animals and not helping the environment because she wanted to help animals and help the environment. And, but, but that would not have been evoked, that, that tension, that, that hypocrisy. Or, and it's not even hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is, is a negative way of putting it. It's an absurdity that exists in the system and that we get swept up into. It's kind of like being swept up in a riptide out of the ocean. This has actually happened to me before. <laughs> I almost drowned in oh, no. the Santa Cruz Ocean. I've actually almost drowned many times because I'm a terrible swimmer and I still go out and do dumb, ridiculous stuff even though I don't really know how to swim. But it's kind of getting swept up into riptide. You know? it's just, so it's not hypocrisy. And it's like, it's, it's a really terrible thing. I don't want to be out there <laughs> almost drowning and I don't want the lifeguard to have to come out and save me. Fortunately, that did happen this time and it's happened other times too. But it's, it's a terrible, intense situation because I brought this upon myself, right? I, in, some, in some sense, you could say, Wayne, what the heck? You like went out in the ocean. You don't know how to swim. What are, what are you doing? <laughs> There's a riptide. They just pulled you out of the ocean. Now you're drowning. Like you're drinking. I was drinking a ton of seawater that time. And I even had like a surfboard and, um, and a you know, buoyant wetsuit, but I was still drowning. And similarly, I mean, it's, it's actually kind of metaphorically appropriate because I think the surfboard and the wetsuit for folks who are, are drowning in the delusions of yeah. an unsustainable, unethical planet are out there. And, and they know they're in a bad place, but they really tried. I mean, that's the reason I put the wetsuit on. That's the reason I had the surfboard because I thought, oh, I can now go out there into the world and do my thing and I won't die. But, but similarly, I mean, people go out there and they buy their humane meat, they guy from the free range burger joint and they think, oh, I'm, I'm fine. And, and they're not, and we're not. Um, but I wanna, I wanna walk us back to the beginning of DXE because I think the, the beginnings of DXE are, are really, really fascinating. And I haven't actually talked about this with anyone on the podcast, partly because I haven't talked to anyone who was there at the beginning. Um, <laughs> so we started this in 2012. We started the conversation since 2012, but I actually didn't meet you until 2013. Yeah. It was me and Ronnie initially. And then Cristobal. And then we met you in 2013. Um, and this is at a time in the movement, and, and frankly, not just in the animal rights movement, but in the environmental movement and um, to a certain extent in other movements too. But there was, there was between, I'd say, the fall of the Soviet Union in the 1990s and then the you know, early 2010s and the late 2000s, there was this belief that history had ended and that 
most of the world's problems have been solved. And to the extent we need to solve these problems, we can solve them just for individual choices. We don't need any collective or political action. We can just, you know, support the right businesses and buy the right products and the world will piece by piece become a better place. And this is the dominant framework that you and I were operating under as animal rights advocates in 2012. Everybody thought vegan outreach was just the only way to reach our objectives. The environmental movement didn't really have any of the mass actions. This is years before Standing Rock, years before the Sunrise Movement. And I know when I was growing up, like in the 1980s and 90s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, I remember we used to get these books in school called 50 Ways Kids Can Save the Earth. You're probably too young. I don't remember, remember that. This. this is like a thing that almost all kids were getting. And it, it relates to, there, there's so many different ways this manifested itself. Even the, the war on drugs, it was very much focused on individual responsibility yeah. and saying there's this program called DARE that Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan were really big on. And it was, I don't even want to remember what DARE meant, the acronym, but it was basically say no to drugs. Oh you yeah, know, I remember yeah, this. Like, I do remember DARE. Yeah. And the problem with, with drugs and, you know, the massive amount of, of substance abuse in this country is people aren't taking personal responsibility. Yeah. And, or maybe they're not getting the right education. So the entire framework of the movement is personal education. And there is no thought about how do you take on corporate power or government power, right? No thought about the literally hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies, taxpayer dollars that are being fueled into animal agriculture, the enormous political influence, the hundreds of millions and billions of dollars they invest back in the political system. There's no thought into even social norms. How do we create rules of conduct and habits beyond just individual choice that can create movements like Black Lives Matter or climate justice or animal rights? And lo and behold, and unsurprisingly, most of these movements are failing. You know, the environmental movement is getting nowhere. Even in Europe, governments are not doing anything about climate change. You've got the Kyoto Protocols and the Paris Accords and never really accomplish anything. Per capita meat consumption is skyrocketing, and the grassroots animal rights movement has fallen apart. And, um, and there isn't really a lot of confidence. I remember one of my first conversations when I moved to the Bay Area was, was with some advocates, including, um, actually, this is not in the Bay Area, but you know, when, I, when I went back to the East Coast, I wouldn't even say who, but with some longtime animal rights activists who are saying, like, I'm really optimistic about the animal rights movement. I bet maybe in a few hundred years, oh, no. like a few hundred years, we might be able to replace meat with something that's plant-based. And I'm like, a few hundred years? <laughs> you know, that's, that's like poverty of low expectations. Um, and I think there were a lot of us who were feeling this, just feeling, oh, yeah. wow, there's something like deeply wrong about this. There's something, it's not just delusional about the way we're seeing animals, but there's something delusional about the way we're seeing social change. So, um, yeah, I mean, tell me about your first experience of DXE and, or not even DXE because DXE didn't even really exist. It was just like a group of people. But your first experience, like meeting me and Ronnie and being exposed to this new model of activism that was about having a bigger vision yeah. and being more honest about what we needed to do to save this planet and our animal friends. Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you, what, I'll tell you about all that. I'll just backtrack and, and let, you know, just want to paint a picture for people of the type of per what, where I was in my life. So I was, I was, uh, I wanted to be a makeup artist and I think I started a little business and I had lots of makeup and I will never forget this. Like I just wanted to show people what a vegan consumerist I was. I literally dumped all my makeup and my mom was screaming. She's like, that's like $3,000 of makeup. And I was like, I don't want this. 
and then I went to Whole Foods and bought like $200 worth of makeup for like, like five things for $200. And I was like, damn, like I'm making moves, you know, like this is so cool. Look at me. I'm, I'm changing things. And, um, I will say you look great, you know, so <laughs> that's one side benefit. Maybe you weren't changing the world, but you know. But I just you were doing well on Instagram. Think, thanks, thanks so much. I guess was Instagram even around back then? Maybe it was, Instagram it was, it was very. It was already different. around in 2012. Yeah, it was, it was very different. But um, so yeah, I, I was. I mean, just the limitations of what I thought was change is just mind blowing to think back on. Like I thought I was doing something incredible by going to Whole Foods and buying makeup, makeup yeah. and that blows my mind. And, and you but, know, actually, I think this is my first exposure to you. Yeah, because we had a group called Bay Area Animal Rights Protest that yeah. you and Danielle and Donald yeah. started. And I think I think you were posting photos of that with you like, <laughs> and yeah. various types of cruelty free makeup. And I was like, oh. That's the person who shows off their makeup. And, yeah. You know, again, you do a very good job with makeup. I can't <laughs> complain about your makeup skills. <laughs> Thanks. But yeah, it just makes me laugh because, I mean, that, that, is the envi- that is like the environment that I was in. Is That was my response. And so the first time when I met you and uh, Cristobal and Ronnie, I was like mind blown when I heard Wayne, when I heard you say, I think we can make animal liberation happen in one generation like i you know that emoji on on the phone where the little emoji's brain is like (laughs) coming out of his head that was me i was like what the hell is this guy talking about and then um and this is in an in-person meeting right yeah this this was in in that apartment in palo alto so that was one yeah and uh the second moment of me my mind being blown was when um well it was probably meeting lisa and natalie I, i love them um, and then the second uh, moment was when you were critiquing vegan consumerism. And I honestly was like, okay, this guy's crazy. Like, uh, shut up. Like, what are you talking about? Are you kidding me? Because, I mean, at this yeah, point, that's I, what you're doing. That's what I'm doing. And, I, and you, you know, you're talking about like veganism and how that doesn't really, you know, help animals directly. I mean, it's a part of it, but it doesn't really help animals. It's not saving their lives. So I was like, whoa, what? But then a part of me was like, okay, I'm, I want to listen. Like, I want to listen to, you know, what happens next? Third stage of my mind being blown was when you asked, like, okay, well, we're going to do this action because we got to disrupt, you know, we got to disrupt these <laughs> these places of violence where animals are being objectified. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't even care who you are. Like, I have been, this is, I don't know, I think I manifested myself into this, yes, let's go. And I raised my hand and I was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. And I just remember taking action and something changed. Like something, I, I just, I, I will never forget it. Something just felt so different. And it was as if I was meant, that I was meant to do this. Like I was meant yeah. to be here and I was meant, because I, that's what I, I wanted. Because I would cry every single day. I remember, com, com, you know, I worked at the Tenderloin Housing Clinic. I saw human suffering. I saw animal suffering when I would go home on my phone, on, on, on Facebook. And the world was just a, horrible place and Mm -hmm. the remedy of vegan consumerism was failing me in ways i didn't even understand until i took action yeah it's bizarre that there was that rapid transition granted this is a pretty long meeting in the early stages if you remember open meetings used to be very philosophical yeah and we discussed things for hours had you even read boycott veganism by that point no No, i went i went home that day 
Ronnie yeah. sent me boycott veganism. <laughs> Good old Fourth Ronnie. moment of me, my mind being blown. I sent it to this one person I'd connect with on who lived. I don't even. She didn't. She didn't even have a name. Like, or she did have a name. Oh, is this like, the woman who was making the dairy page? Yeah, Damla. Yeah, the dairy page. I totally forgot about that. And we it's got like, in a fight because I was like, "Hey, we yeah, should hear." She was upset about it. Yeah, uh-huh. she's like, "That's bullshit." And I was like, "Well, I think they have a point. Like, we should listen to it, you know." But. Um, yeah, for the record, I don't necessarily stand behind boycott veganism. The tone of it is extremely resentful and arrogant. And I, I, I think there's something very powerful about the vegan identity that we should be harnessing and capitalizing on and not denigrating. But there is a lot of good sociological research in the article, which yeah. I wrote in 2007. Well, and the essence of it was like against consumerism and against, you know, against this idea that change can come from... Yeah from consumerist choices. And I think the essence of it remains true. I think that's true. What's not good about it is attacking people's identity. Yeah. Like, I think, I, I identify as vegan. I, I'm, well, I mean, I will say, like, for me, veganism is not my most important identity. My most important identity is just someone who loves animals. I'm an animal advocate. I'm, I'm a father to animals. Yeah. I'm, I had siblings growing up. My, my dog, when I was growing up, was my sibling. She was my sister. She was not my pet. She's not even my companion. She was my sister. More than, sorry, Amy. <laughs> even more than my biological sister, honestly. And I love my biological sister. Amy's great. But Vivian was, was my sister that I needed at the time that I was growing up. Um, but for other people, it is important. Even for me, it's been important at times in ways that I don't quite understand. And I don't stand behind that article, which for the record was never even published, even though it got me banned from a lot of vegan mm-hmm. forums. I, I don't stand behind that article because it misses... For two reasons. One, it misses the importance of identity to many people. And second, because it's too focused on resentment towards people who are focused on consumer activism rather than inspiring all of us to find our collective power, to find the power of us speaking our truth and doing more than that. But just, I want to paint a picture for all of you about how shocking this meeting was initially with Priya. Because (laughs) first of all, my only exposure to Priya at this point is I think you know, someone who's posting in this group called Barry Animal Rights Protest, like fancy Instagram selfies and talking about vegan makeup, you know, like an early vegan influencer. I mean, there still are a lot of vegan influencers and a lot of makeup influencers. And if, you know, that's, that's your mission in life, then it's a great way to accomplish it by posting these beautiful selfies. And, and Priya, for those of you who don't know, I mean, she's this glamorous, beautiful <laughs> woman who looks like you'd be shopping at Louis Vuitton. So the, Louis Vuitton is a place we ultimately decided to protest on that day. <laughs> So you look like somebody should be shopping there, or, or a model for Louis Vuitton, you know, modeling <laughs> one of their so handbags, nice. right? That's, that's what you should be doing. And so we say, but Louis Vuitton is selling fur. They're selling leather. They're selling these products that are totally cruel to animals. Who wants to be the person who speaks out? And this person who the entire meeting is, is giving me a lot of skeptical looks <laughs> and just thinking, what is going on here? And who has been entirely focused on consumer change and, you know, educating people and working in a... I'm going to use the buzzword, a neoliberal way, you know, (laughs) for the record, I'm not radically, I think neoliberalism, both the critiques and the support of neoliberalism, it's a lot more nuanced than just saying neoliberalism is wrong, but it is a rough approximation. I think it's approximately correct to say neoliberalism is wrong. If you don't know what neoliberalism is, it's basically the idea that change happens through markets, through buying and selling things. That's not the way the world works. But this person who had been adopting that sort of model of change is sitting here in this meeting with me and Ronnie and Ashley. Remember Ashley? Yeah. She was awesome. 
It was the one who dragged you to the meeting. Yes. You didn't even want to come. This other woman who was like, these yeah, she's are cool. the reason why I went. Actually, yeah, I mean, you didn't think we were cool. She did, and then you're yeah. like, all right, I'll go with you. You know, yeah, so. I honestly did not come. For she, I was like, <laughs> I want to meet. I was so desperate to meet another vegan. You know, I wonder. I wonder why Ashley came. Because I mean, it's funny. Like Ashley was in training to be a cop. Well, she's a fe- she's fierce. She's fierce. That she has a personality has, yeah. that's strong and that she wants to get in the mix of things. So yeah. maybe that's why she liked us. Yeah. But well, and she and, really cares about animals. She does. She was deeply connected to individual animals. But so you and Ashley come in, and we talk about this model of being the change you want to see in the world. And and I don't even know if we talked about it, but I think the transformation you went through on that day was exactly the transformation we wanted the movement to take. Yeah. It's exactly the transformation many of us, including me, had been through. And Gandhi said, you know, almost 100 years ago now, that you have to be the change you want to see in the world. And the reason for that is... When you act in a fashion that's consistent with your principles and values, when you speak your truth and act your truth to the world, it doesn't just transform the world, it transforms you. And the vehicle through which the world is transformed is often through self-transformation. And, and that's kind of what happened to you because we, we talked about the importance of this. We talked about how we have to stop treating this as some sort of hobby you do on the side because you're really into makeup. You know, I got no problem with people are really into makeup or vegan food or whatever it is. That can be a powerful and beautiful thing for community building, for identity. We should encourage and cultivate that. But we also have to have a tone, a story, a set of values that reflects the urgency of the moment we are in, including the fact that billions of animals, including animals exactly like the dogs in our own homes, are being ripped to pieces alive. We have to speak that truth. And I think... For most people, they might not agree with the tactics and the strategy. They might think disruption doesn't make any sense to them. They might quibble with the exact terminology, animal liberation, animal rights, animal welfare. When they hear that, that what we want to do is just speak truth. And we want to empower you to speak truth about what's happening to these animals. And even for just a tiny moment of your experience, experience what that animal is going through in those moments when she is being ripped to pieces alive. Can't stay there too long, because if you stay there too long, you'll be broken. But just even for a glimpse, like even for a microsecond, you feel that. And speak that truth and channel that truth in the world. Be the change, right? Let's reflect the reality of this world as the animals experience it, as billions of animals are experiencing it. That is the mechanism through which we're gonna change the world. And that's, I think, the thing that has hooked most people. It might've been the thing that hooked you. Definitely. So that, that is the part of boycott veganism I 100% stand behind, that we have to speak truth. We have to, we have to speak truth to power. We have to say the things that we really want to say. We have to express the feelings we actually have about that and express the feelings the animals are actually feeling and the planet is actually feeling. And then we said we have to do this in public because if we don't do it in public, if we're always hiding it, you know, there's enormous amount of sociological research suggesting that self-silencing is a huge part of why movements don't grow. Um, it's this phenomenon that one of my mentors, Cass Sunstein, calls preference falsification. It was true in the women's liberation movement. You know, until Mary Wollstonecraft came along, women might have been upset about the fact they couldn't vote, they couldn't own property, they weren't allowed to have a job or an education. But the moment they said something, people literally laughed at them. Thomas Taylor, a very famous Cambridge philosopher in the late 1700s, when Mary Wollstonecraft first wrote the book, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, he wrote a response to her saying, this is hilarious. And he actually wrote a parody of A Vindication of the Rights of Women called A Vindication of the Rights of Beasts. 
animals saying, ha 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 ha. How ridiculous is this woman? Because the same logic that she is using to argue for women's rights could easily apply to animals as well. And at the time, this was used to point out the absurdity of women's rights. Today, we should look back and say, no, 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 no. Mary Wollstonecraft was right. But Thomas Taylor was right too. The same logic and arguments that could be used to extend moral consideration and empathy to women and people of color can also be used to extend those same principles to animals. And we just wanted this truth to come out. We wanted people to be able to speak this truth. So anyways, we're sitting in this meeting. We're saying, okay, and this is always the way DX is operated. You know, it's, it's, it's very much about empowering people and saying, you've got the power. You're not just here as a supporter. You're not just here as someone cheering someone else on who's braver or more experienced or more knowledgeable or smarter than you. You are the change. Like you are the way this change happens. And in those early meetings, we'd have a meeting and say like, well, if we believe this, let's go fucking do it. You know, let's prove it. Let's prove <laughs> it. And, and so that's what we did. We said, let's, let's figure out what we're going to do. And I don't even remember. Do you remember who proposed Louis Vuitton? Was it you or someone else? I don't know. I don't remember either. Yeah, I don't know who proposed it. But we, we, we literally just came up with an action plan. Yeah. So, okay, what is a way we can do this right now that will allow us to speak our truth in an evocative, in a social media friendly way? Because this is in the early days of YouTube. <laughs> We're thinking about how do we make these videos? And we decided we'd do a freeze because yeah. there was this group called Improv Everywhere. And again, this is before direct action ever was even really a thing. There's another group called Improv Everywhere. It was not an activist group or a social justice group. They were just kind of a, a YouTube social media group that was trying to get clicks and views. And they had just done this thing called The Freeze in Grand Central Station in New York City where they had, I think, a few hundred people who at a particular moment in the clock, a certain minute, hour, and second tick, a couple hundred people who looked like they were all distinct and separate, all just frozen place. And everyone walking through the train station is just like, what the hell is going on? There's like all these frozen people. It looks like someone's cast a spell on them. We said, so we just had a pigeon fly by. <laughs> we got a pigeon friend in this studio. And we decided, well, we want to provoke that same sort of curiosity and understanding and awareness, um, but we want to do it for a political purpose. So we did that in Louis Vuitton. And the rest is history. Yeah, and the rest is so, history. But tell me, I mean, tell me about your experience. What do you remember about that? Like I, going to the Louis Vuitton? Because the thing that we said, well, we need someone to speak on behalf of the action. When everyone's yeah. frozen in the Louis Vuitton, who is going to talk? Yeah. And you raise your hand. Yeah, I raise my hand. I mean, there's something about me where I just kind of like attention. <laughs> and I also like you being also like provocative, risk. you know? Yeah. And yeah, I think I do like... Yeah, I think I do like risk. So I was like, yeah, this is, I mean, I, 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 some things that you just don't, I don't understand. Yeah. I don't understand why, why, uh, I did that. Like it was just so in instinctive. So I was like, yes, I want to do it. Um, yeah. I remember going up to the counter and well, this is part of our action plan where we would talk to, um, the employees cause we're not trying to demonize them and just say like, Hey, I just wanted to bring up something that's been, um, that we're not talking about here. And that's the dead animals who are whose bodies have been turned into uh, clothing, purses in this case, um, and other objects to sell. And uh, I, I forget if we had an ask or not, but after, we, after I talked to her, then I think the plan was I go outside and then I say something, and I don't know what, that, what I said, but I think it was... Um, Probably something about how we need to stop and yeah. pay attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're yeah, frozen, yes, right? Yes. We're all frozen, and I, I yeah. think the metaphor was... All of us need to freeze for a moment yes. and reflect. Yeah, that's what it was. And then we all froze 
and then we were just frozen for like a minute or so and yeah. then the freeze broke and i did a speak out yeah and back then i remember you know we, we've been doing know your rights and arrest trainings from day one but back then we were in a state in the movement not only was everyone stuck in just thinking kind of vegan consumerism was the way to achieve animal rights and animal liberation but also there's enormous amount of fear you know i'm i, I I don't know if we did like a know your rights training right before that action, but back then people thought, wow, could I get arrested? And so I think of the people froze, only like one or two were willing to do it inside the actual store, mm-hmm. even though it's not illegal. I mean, there's nothing illegal about being frozen in a store. If they tell you to leave, you got to leave, but you know, you can go into a store and not move. That's yeah. fine. You know, <laughs> there's nothing illegal about that, but people were terrified. Yeah. And this is back on a day. When, because of what happened in the mid-2000s, a bunch of actives, including some of my friends, got arrested and thrown in prison for running a website. And that's a much longer story. It's a little more nuanced than that. Don't worry. If you run a website, it's very unlikely you're going to get in prison for merely running a website. But some people did. But the result was the tactics the industry had used to create fear in the movement had worked. And people were so scared of doing anything to disrupt business as usual that even leafleting, even, even just standing in a store and freezing, even going to a counter and saying, hey... You know, I just want to tell you as a customer, I'm not a big fan of that for a product. There's an animal who might have been skinned alive for that product, and it's not worth the price, whatever the price is. And even that was scary. And I think a lot of people were scared when we first started doing these things. And I don't know. Were you scared? No. <laughs> really? I don't think so, because... I don't know. I guess part of being impulsive is you don't really think about those things. (laughs) Like, I don't think I thought about that. And I mean, you know, like there's certain things you can't explain, but like one of the things about you, Wayne, is that when people meet you, they, they, I, you just feel the sense of like, I think this person got my back and I felt that. And I, I I haven't realized it until now, but like, or years later, but I think I felt that because I was like, you knew what you were talking about. And even though I thought like, there was a lot of things that you said that I was like, what the hell? But there was, you know, something I felt that you communicated made me feel safe. I was like, I'm in good hands. So I, I, di- I just didn't feel fear. I didn't feel scared. Yeah, it probably helps that I'm an attorney. Yeah, that, <laughs> that, that definitely helps. And um, yeah. yeah, it's weird because I, I always tell people not to go to law school. And I, <laughs> I don't think being an attorney is the best life. There's a lot of people I know who are lawyers and completely miserable. Well, to, but, the, to the extent you can use it to help animal yeah. rights activists and go against corporations, that's yeah. great. You know, it's funny because I think I've said so many times that I regret going to law school. And most of the things that I meant to do when I went to law school, I completely failed at and <laughs> I have not done. So, you know, for example, I mean, one of the reasons I went to law school was to do animal welfare stuff. Yeah. And obviously, that's been a complete failure. The efforts we made at the University of Chicago to create a, a transparent system of food have failed and in fact it's it's gone in the opposite direction the food system is more less transparent and more deceptive now than it was in in, in the early 2000s and 2002 when i first went to law school and decided to go to work with cass and Mar- martha on this project called the the project on animal on principles of animal treatment which fell apart for a variety of reasons um and the other thing i wanted to do when i went to law school is i wanted to become a professor and i failed at that too but it has turned out to be pretty useful so i think i should stop telling people that I shouldn't have gone to law school because it has, I think, injected. Yeah. But I think the other thing that, that I have that I, I think anyone who's trying to be an activist, you really have to cultivate this in yourself is I really do just believe in people. Yeah. You, you know, and it's, it's weird because I'm also kind of harsh. Yeah. <laughs> like I have pretty high standards. Anyone who works with me will say, 
I, I always shoot for the moon, including for the movement. You know, when everyone else is saying it's going to take hundreds or thousands yeah. of years, it'll never happen. I was like, no, we're going to do this in 40 years. Yeah. If not faster. Like I, I, and I've actually gone up. Like I've become a little more pessimistic, but I'm still very optimistic about the movement. But, but I did, even though I thought, here's this woman who is doing all the things that I think are wrong in the movement. <laughs> who, I mean, you're definitely passionate and smart. But yeah. You had a lot of strange views about animal rights when yeah. I first met you. And I didn't agree with any of them. But I'm going to lay my trust in this action yeah. in one of our first theatrical, nonviolent, direct actions at a place where there's a lot of power and privilege. You know, yeah. it's Stanford University Mall. In Palo Alto, Stanford is one of the most powerful institutions. It's not that this is Stanford University itself, but it's where all the fancy people from Stanford and tech yeah, shop. Yeah. Louis Vuitton is obviously a very high-end retailer. And I'm just going to lay my trust in her. Yeah. She's going to say whatever the hell she's going to say. And it's going to be fine. Yeah. And, and for people listening who ha- have now been part of so many actions and disruptions that are like, well, that's so like almost just like so normal now. It wasn't back then. It was yeah. a big deal. And like, I think. No one was doing it. Yeah. No, no one. one was doing it. So yeah. No one was even protesting. Exactly. So it's like a new person who's like you know, disagreeing with you all of a sudden wants to do something that's risky. You really, yeah, I think you, you know, there, yeah, I don't know what it was, but I think Wayne, you definitely have this thing where you do believe in people. And I sense that. And yeah. I mean, I went home and I remember you were like calling me and you were like, okay, how can we get you more involved? And, yeah. you know, just saying like, you have, you can do social media and, and all this stuff. And I don't even feel that in myself. I was like, I'm not that great, but I, I really felt that from you. And I think a lot of people did too. Well, I mean, I think there's something, and I've told this before, I think there's something special in you. And I think, I'm not saying it would have been wise to trust everybody in that situation. Uh, maybe it wasn't even wise to trust you. It turned out okay, but maybe it was a little silly that, you know, one of our first recorded public demonstrations for this thing that we didn't even, I think, really have a clear name on or concept on. We'll just rest the you know the public role in this the spokesperson role to someone i literally met an hour ago <laughs> um but the thing that you have that i think i sense from day one is confidence there is a certain confidence and charisma that you have that is very unique yes. and and we were reflecting a couple of days on this on why you have this i think it has a lot to do with being an immigrant and going from a place where you were kind of the boss in India in Punjab <laughs> when you were growing up. Becoming the United States and being at the other end of the totem pole yeah. and having to like work yourself back up to some position of just basic social standing. You know, like you came here was like a few months after, or a few months before 9 11. Yeah. Right? In a, in a sick family where like, sick folks are not Muslim, but they're com- commonly confused as being Muslim because they wear turbans and they have extremely long hair and, you know, that's part of their tradition. And they're brown skinned, obviously, like a lot of people from the Arab world. And having to work yourself back up from a place where you knew you had something. You knew you had a power, a charisma, because that's where you were in India, you know, like in your family and your community back in Punjab. You were someone that everyone loved and everyone respected and everyone was drawn to. And then coming to the United States where it's the exact opposite. People are literally afraid of you and calling you a terrorist and scared of you just because of who you are. And, you know, I told a lot of stories. And if you haven't all... um, watch The Intercept piece. There's like a great, great video segment that my buddy Leighton Woodhouse did. He's a journalist. He works at The Intercept. He made a video about Priya's journey and from immigrant and, and frankly, immigrant who is facing a lot of hardship in this country to someone taking direct action in this country. Um, 
That's a great video. So I don't know. There's something about you that, that gave me the confidence, and, and that's proven true. You know, like I think anyone Thanks. who's seen your evolution of the last 10 years would say, yeah, there's, there's something pretty transformative about the power of this woman and her ability to seize the moment. And that's what you did on that day. Thanks so much. And I think I carry whatever happened that day. I still think of back at it as something really magical. I still carry that, I guess, that um, desire to speak truth to power very close to my heart. And I think it kind of awakened that day. And I mean, that's what we created collectively in DXC. And yeah. that's transformed, hopefully, a lot of people into speaking truth to power in every circumstance where... Um, non-human animals, where vulnerable people, our planet, um, is being subjected to degradation and violence. Yeah. Now, seeing someone else speak out inspires you too, as well. And that's, I mean, it's honestly pretty simple theory of change. And that's kind of our theory of change, that when you see someone else speak out, you will too. And, and the dialogue and discussion that provokes, even if you're not accepted immediately, eventually builds a movement that can change the world. So what, what happened after that action? Like you, did, you went home? Did you go home? I don't even remember. So yep. did you go home with Ashley? Did we, we didn't have food after that. Normally, um, I don't remember. I don't think we had a lot of times after actions, we just go hang out and debrief. And Yeah, I think I went home. Yeah. And what were you went, thinking? Like what was your I was mind. I was like processing all of that because I was reading that the article. I was like thinking about every... I definitely felt very motivated. And I... Yeah, there's certain things in life like you can't explain. And I think that was one of them because I just, I, I didn't even know who you were. I don't know why I showed up. I really don't understand why I was there besides the fact that I wanted to meet Ashley. And I just ended up there and I knew it. My life would never be the same. Like it was just a feeling that I had. And I, I yeah, I think those two days, like my memory's not the best when it comes to recalling, you know, every little incident. But that those days, like, I remember so vividly and I think it's because something just changed in me like and I can't explain it just like I can't explain I was talking to our friend Julianne about this I don't know if you know this but this is just a side note I can't explain why I was not Julianne was supposed to be in my role in Petaluma Poultry and last minute we switched and it's like Mm -hmm. another one of those things you can't explain but it's like I was just like meant to be there and ever since then um like yeah that's been my life so I knew my life was changing and uh, I think the next day you called me and said like, hey, it would be great to get you more involved. And I think a few days later, maybe even that week, we did another action or maybe, and I just remember next thing I know, I'm like managing DXE's social media. <laughs> yeah, I think I which gave is you another, access to a council. Which is really great. Because yeah, it's no, like, I just, I literally just handed them over. It's like, all right, it's yours. <laughs> yeah, but like, and, and that's another thing. You really had to trust me with that because I was so angry. Yeah. Like I was like, I would, you know, I would like flip out at people in person while at protests, like almost get into fights. And yeah, but I think the values that we built, you know, founded DXC on, I internalized them. And yeah, I just remember being like, okay, I guess I'm doing social media for DXC now. Yeah. Well, I think the reason I trusted you, I mean, I, I think I'm pretty trusting person in general too, but is it goes back to what we said earlier, just. I could tell that you loved animals yeah. and that was the foundation of everything. So even if you're angry, even if you sometimes said things that I would have necessarily said, I could tell it was based on this foundation of just the profound love and connection to animals. So including, you know, I mean, I remember just seeing you interact with my dogs and, you know, one of whom, you know, actually both of whom ultimately became your dogs too. Mm. 
and I could tell you really love them. And that, that, that gives you a lot of trust in people. Not that there aren't people who, mostly because of the damage, just a world that has so much animal suffering does to them. There are people who deeply love animals who are not in a good place to do a lot of collaborative activism. That's something we've learned over the years too, yeah. that there's a lot of people who are hurt in this movement and, and hurt people often hurt people. But um, I could tell there was a strength in you or confidence in you and there was a profound love for animals and, and that was powerful. Thanks. Wayne. So I, you know, we got to wind this down at some point, but I do want to talk about the first open rescue. Yes. Um, so I was, I'm actually, this is the first time I heard, I didn't know that that first action was a thing that felt like turned things for you. Cause I think, you know, I'd done activism for years before I really saw like a life changing experience. Cause even when I was doing animal rights activism, when I was in law school and grad school as an undergraduate, I kind of thought in many ways it was the thing that most emotionally appealed to me and that called me, but I still was kind of trapped by all these conventional stereotypes of what an Asian kid, especially is supposed to be. I wanted to be a professor, you know, you're supposed to get a PhD and we both have faced these pressures in Indian and Chinese families. It's just yeah. academic achievement. Nothing else really matters. And that's just literally how I saw life. I just thought my goal in life is academic achievement. And so I'm going to go to grad school, get a PhD, get a JD and become a professor. And the moment for me was, you know, almost 10 years into my activist life when I walk into a slaughterhouse and it was related to the fact that I was failing in the thing that I thought I was supposed to do. So it took me a while. I didn't realize that was the first and transformative moment for you. Well, I don't think I realized it until recently either huh. because, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just, I think it was re recently I was reflecting on it and I realized like, okay, yeah, that was really transformative. And I, yeah, I was just thinking about um, things I can't really explain. And that's one of them. I like, I still can't explain it. I don't know why I was where I was. Like it just, it's almost like I was meant to be there. And yeah. it, it feels a little, it feels like magical, you know? And it's like, yeah. yeah, I was meant to be there because that was what, what that is what, the purpose that I, uh, it, that's in my heart. And what was it that made you feel that way? Was it just the action? Was it the meeting before? Was it the people you met? I mean, what, what was it specifically that made you think, oh, wow, this is, this is actually literally going to change my life? Mm. Do you remember? Because I didn't know that. If I would have guessed, yeah. what was the transforming moment for you? Actually, you want to guess what I would have guessed? Mm. No. It was walking into that egg farm. Because I just remember how shaken you were. And just, I, I could see like a physical manifestation. Yeah. So, I mean, not that I didn't think you were dedicated. Yeah. I thought you were very dedicated. But I thought when we first walked into Penelope Farms, I mean, granted, we had done some cool stuff before then. The Earthlings March, all these Chipotle protests. But probably, I mean, it was probably a case of projection. where Because that was my experience that I thought it was yours. So, well, I think it was just this like... Yeah, I think when it, what it boils down to is I think just sensing this like vision and come to fruition. Hmm. I think it was the vision. Yeah. Because like, yeah, a little bit of backdrop. Like I, I basically would go home, watch videos of animals, watch movies like Earthlings. And the only person who I had to talk to about all these things was my mom. Um, and, you know, like she was the only one who really understood that too. And I had like suicidal moments where hmm. I was just like, I don't think I want to be... Like, I remember waking up after dreaming of uh, um, being inside of slaughterhouses and, you know, like, honestly, like, connecting with, with animals who are suffering in that way. I could, I could feel it, and I still can feel it when I, like, tap into that that sort of mindset. And I, I was just like, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't think I want to live on, on this planet. Like, I felt really, really deeply disturbed. And I think when I went into that 
like when we, when we did that action, when I met you, when I met, when we did something that was so beautiful, it's like, that was just a, I, I could sense it. I think I could sense that it was a microcosm for something to come. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think learning about open rescue and, um, and going into the slaughterhouse was very transformative as well. Hmm. When did you first hear about Open Rescue? When did we first... I don't even remember when we first started talking about it. I know this was in my mind. When we started DXC, I thought, this is what the goal is. <laughs> you know, I want to build a movement for Open Rescue. But it was also... Again, this is at a time in the movement where people are scared to leaflet, much less, you know, enter a factory farm and remove animals. I remember it was at a meeting. Yeah. In one of our core meetings in, mm-hmm. and at the old house. And, and I, you asked, like, okay, who would be interested after you describe what Open Rescue is? Hmm. And gave a little bit of history and context. That's another one of the moments that I remember. And I'm right. I was like, I want to do it. Huh. What was it, what was the context? Was a meeting about Up and Rescue? Or we were. It, it was we were just discussing what our plans were. And do you remember? Was that like in the first year? Was it, it was pretty early on? Right? Definitely. I think we always okay. knew that we were going to do. You know, that we were going to do Open Rescue because I think we talked about um, everything else is is kind of building up to that. Yeah. Um, building up to the ultimate, I guess, direct action. Yeah. Is facing off with these at these places where animals are directly being subjected to uh, violence. And so that's when I first like understood, you know, heard, understood open rescue. But I think again, on, on another level, like I, we, we all, we all know what open rescue is. Like we don't need to, you know, hear it. Cause I remember I had, I built a, a small group of friends and we would go out and feed cats. And mm-hmm. amongst other things, we found this one facility where they were like testing on dogs. And I was like, I want to go. Mm-hmm. So I, those poor dogs out. so I was already like thinking that way. I didn't know like, you know, this coined term, I was already thinking that way. So when I heard about open rescue, I was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is it. We got to do this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, it'd be interesting to go back through the notes and at some point, I should have Ronnie on this podcast. Ronnie's helping out with this podcast already immensely. But Ronnie's the one of the other co-founders. He was he and I were the first two people on the Barry who started sitting down and chatting. And I'd be curious to for his recollection as to when we first started talking about this. I think we first started talking about this before DXC was even in existence. Um, but the the distinct moment I recall first having a collective real conversation was, I think we were talking about the Chipotle campaign and you know, the suffering of the animals and how deceptive these industries were and how we knew that they were lying about free range. And, you know, back then they had created this documentary called The Scarecrow, which is all about how wonderful the life is. They, they literally had this poor cow in a factory in this cartoon and it was this dreary, cursed existence. And then they said this, and this is Chipotle. And they, they got the cow outside and pigs running around and they're like friends with the people who are slaughtering them. It's like, that's not the way the world works. And people were saying, how do we dispel this? And we were engaged in this deep strategic conversation about narrative and about disinformation. Actually, that feels very relevant today, given how much disinformation there is. And at one point, I remember saying, what we got to do, we just got to kick the door down and start taking the animals out. I literally said, we have to kick the door down and start taking these animals out. That's the only way people will see what's actually happening. And I remember, this is at Ronnie's house. I remember everyone was just like, they had their eyes big and mouths open. I'm just like, did he just say that? Because in some cases, these are people I hadn't known that long. I hadn't known any of you that long. You know, I'm talking about conduct that has led some people to face very long in prison sentences. Yeah. And I just said this openly. And, and the two things I remember that are first, just 
how everyone was like, whoa. And I wasn't even sure it was like, whoa, good or whoa, I need to leave right now. <laughs> I was like, is everyone going to walk out and say, okay, this is a little too much. Or if it was, whoa, that's right. And, but I do remember from the moment we first started talking about it, whether people's initial reaction was fear or inspiration, the sustained reaction, the, the mentality that developed in DXE was the latter. Yeah. It absolutely was that this was the fuel. This is the vision. This is the purpose that all of us had, that we are the group that goes to the dark places where animals are being tortured and we just get them out. Mm-hmm. We get them out and we show it openly to the world. Um, so that, speaking of which, we did it. Yeah. You know, we did it. And we did it for the first time in a long time in U.S. history. There hadn't been any open rescues. For 10 years. Yeah, something like a decade, close to a decade. Um, but tell me about that experience. Like when, when you first got involved, like what were you thinking? What were you feeling? What were you afraid of? What were you inspired by? Do you remember your first time walking in? Yeah, definitely. Is, so tell oh, me yeah. about that. Yeah. Because this is not my first time. So like one of the problems is when you've been doing it a while, you kind of forget the experience and you forget all the details because it just feels too normal. But for you, that was the first time. Yeah, I know. I, I will never forget that. Um, I think I remember a lot of, you know, having these conversations. I think the preparation um, in many ways frames... Um, you know, open rescue, not that anything really can prepare you for what you are going to experience. Hmm. But I remember preparing a lot and being like really, really thorough in everything we did. And people have worked with Wayne, like, honestly, that was really good because it, if it really helped me understand, like, we're not just, you know, going in and like doing something risky just to like be these badass kids. Like this Mm -hmm. is serious. We're saving lives and I think the framing of it was really helped create this st- stability hmm. that I think I still carry with me. Um, stability and responsibility. Like we are doing something really important and we have to carry ourselves in a way that we are bringing justice and bringing, you know, like we have an important role to play. So I, I remember the beginnings and I think everything from the preparation and for the, those of you, um, if you've ever been on an open rescue mission or heard people you know, do it, especially with DXC. We try to do our best in ensuring safety for investigators and um, non-human animals and being as prepared as we possibly can. And uh, I remember that. And I remember driving there. And again, it's just like, it felt so surreal. Mm. It's like you we're driving through, you know, in the middle of the night, um, I remember thinking when we're driving there, like trying to imagine what this Whole Foods Humane Facility, egg facility is going to look like. And I was like trying to imagine it, do my best to imagine it based on um, everything that I've gathered. So you were there the first time we were there, right? Yeah. Okay. It was like me and you and Ronnie, I think. Yes. I I was there the first time. Yeah. You were there the first time, I think. Yeah. So we're driving there. um, And so, yeah, I'm, I'm doing my best to imagine it. And, you know, we had prepared everything. And, and I we remember, had talked about the fact that, you know, this could lead to serious felony charges, which... Yeah, so <laughs> obviously... Kind of so what, 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 were you scared of that? No. Really? No, I don't remember being scared. You weren't scared by the possibility of charges? I guess you had already been arrested at this point. 
Right? No, we no, didn't I talk hadn't. about that. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. At that Chipotle thing in San Francisco, remember? Oh, right, right. So it was you like and Danielle, a Danielle. In a way, it was, yeah. yeah. You had been arrested. Well, well, I guess you weren't arrested that day. You were just charged. Yeah, you know what? Okay, yeah. So I remember like that Chipotle festival. I remember after that, I was like, okay, I got to tell my parents. Because huh. to me, like, I wasn't scared of anything besides like my family being affected yeah. by it. And I remember being in the backyard by the pool and I was like, I, I have to tell you about something. I'm probably going to get arrested in the future. So I had already wow. like wiped that. I already like told them and I was like, this is going to be something yeah. that's important to me. And I remember telling them that. So I think the fear sort of like, hmm. you know, it's subsided in my mind. Cause yeah, I was like, cause okay. you're just mentally prepared for it. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And I mean, I think we never really let fear drive us. Like we were never mm-hmm. like, we did our best to take precautions, but I don't think we had this fearful mentality. We're like, let's be, let's take precaution. Let's be safe. But at the end of the day, we have to, you know, be brave and like <laughs> do what we got to do. Yeah. So I I don't remember being scared, but I do remember feeling this immense amount of responsibility, like, Mm. especially because I don't remember clearly, but I know that I was, yeah, I think we took turns because I took turns going inside, but also being the lookout. And I remember being like, oh my God, like I have to be the person making sure that I communicate properly. If I see something or if I, you know, almost see somebody getting caught, that was very anxiety inducing because, you know, that means that you are the person who's responsible for possibly somebody getting arrested that night. So I remember feeling like scared about that, that because of something I, you know, could do or not do, we could get in trouble. So that was definitely like created anxiety in me. And it's a head trip being out there in the middle of the night and almost complete darkness in this massive facility. I mean, I've said this before, but it almost feels like a fortress of doom when you walk in a factory farm because you see all this suffering, you're seeing all this death. It's completely pitch black. You're standing outside this completely unnatural environment and you're right. I mean, in many ways, lookout is the most anxious role because it's just you and the darkness and uncertainty and fear. And you start hearing things. You start too. hearing things, you start saying things. And it's you, crazy. Yeah, it's I mean, I've had so many of those Yeah, because the moonlight reflects and there's something in the trees, the wind or the animals move in an interesting way. Yeah, there's so many it's, weird it's things intense. that have happened um, during those, but that's that's another story. But okay, I remember when we were looking for parking, we found a good parking spot. Do you remember we hugged before we went in? Yeah. I and then yeah. and I already started getting te- teary-eyed yeah, yeah. when we saw those animals like we we, I mean, it was so dark, we couldn't see them, but we could hear them. Mm-hmm. Saw, so like, cows, and it was so cold, and I was like, mm-hmm. wow, these animals are just out here in the cold. Even when we're walking through the field. Yeah. When, when we're walking through the field towards them, we could see already animals that yeah. were used. And so, yeah, and then um, we had to cross a few fences, which I think were electric, electric fences. Eventually, I think they were. I don't know if they were initially. Oh, yeah, maybe they weren't initially. I don't and actually remember either. But. Then we had to walk through that cesspool. Yeah. And then... Um, and then we walked inside and I will never forget being like, even in my imagination, the worst things I could imagine did not compare to what we hmm. walked into, which was a sea of chickens. And we just, I mean, where, where are you going to set your foot down? I mean, that's what we were thinking. Or at least I was thinking, I was like, where am I going to walk? This is, uh, this is really, I mean, I was just shocked. Yeah. And that's when I was like, how, yeah, I mean, there's even the video truth matters where I, I think I said, like, how dare they? And I, that's how I felt. I was like, how dare they, like, lie to us like this? Like, mm-hmm. what the hell is... I mean, we all know what's wrong with these corporations, but that's what I was thinking. I was like, how can they so blatantly get away with this? You just felt so angry, and I felt so angry. And um, the cries, I I think that's that's hard to forget. And I can still hear their cries. I mean, it's if you've been around chickens at sanctuaries and the beautiful no- uh, noises that they make, it's almost like... 
takes you into a different it's like a you know it's like a portal it's they're, music they're, they're, yeah it's like music it's spiritual and it's so beautiful you just you're connecting with with life in, in such a different way and when you're inside of this factory farm you hear these these chickens and they're dreary oh, you know just heartbreaking cries it's it's like it's it's in the symphony of just just doom and darkness and and just in death and you can just hear it you know yeah. so you 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 see a sea of animals and uh, chickens you can't walk you hear their cries um the smell <laughs> mm-hmm. the smell is is disgusting mm-hmm. it's horrible i mean and i've talked about this before but like it's oftentimes hard to breathe mm-hmm. and you feel this like yeah, every time I've been inside of a factory farm, you just feel this, you just want to cough out all the filth and yeah. to just smell that and realize like, oh, this is what they live in. Mm-hmm. All the feces and all the sud and, and then just you step in it. And then you step in it. Did you, did you lose your shoe that first time? Was it the first time that you lost? Cause I don't even remember. Did you get your shoe back? Cause for those of you who don't. Yeah, I got my shoe just, back. Okay. So we did get it. A, a lot of these places, I mean, there's, you know, even in these so-called cage-free, free-range facilities, most of the birds are raised indoors, and there's some perches, and then there's what's called litter on the bottom. But the litter, if it's not cleaned properly, which it never is, the feces and urine and all the, you know, the stuff that's from tens of thousands or thousands of animals defecating and urinating, which for birds it's often together, it builds up and creates this almost like mud trap, you know, like quicksand. Not, not even quicksand. It's like some sort of slime pool. Oh, God. And animals often get stuck in this. And mm-hmm. in your case, was it? I don't remember if it was the first time or one of the times. I do remember distinctly that you had your foot stuck. Like, and it was so hard. It yeah, was, yeah. It was there, right? Yeah, it yeah, was yeah. At Penel, it was at Penelope Farms. And your shoe actually got pulled yeah. off, like cover and everything. Like everything just got pulled off. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what the animals are living in. And we're pretty big, strong animals. So getting sucked into that, you know, we can pull ourselves out. But for them... Yeah, that's really sad. You know, and yeah, and that... That happens so many times with us. It's just seeing the filthy animals are living in. Yeah, I don't know if that a was living animal trapped in the feces. I don't know if that was the time, the first time we went, or the sec, or you know, the Wonderful. time we rescued yeah. me. Yeah. Well, we, we don't have a lot of time, but t- tell me, you know, we, we we went there, we documented, we saw these things that, as you point out, were very inconsistent with the actual marketing being used, and just the delusions that are being told about what animal agriculture looks like including in many cases by other animal advocates because there were so many people who had been advocating for cage-free yeah. and free-range, oftentimes in good faith, just yeah. not realizing. And this is the importance of getting out there on the front lines in anything. I don't, I don't care whether your issue is homelessness or climate change or animal rights. If you're not out there on the front lines taking direct observations from the way the world actually is, you're living in a fantasy world. This is the problem with the ivory tower. And this is one of the reasons I was not happy as an academic because I knew the issues I was concerned about and doing research on i would not actually understand until i got out in the front lines we got out there in the front lines and we saw the reality of what it was um and then one day and i think it wasn't even intentional on the day we rescued her we take may out so tell me about that experience i was yeah i think i was the lookout that time mm -hmm. and yeah you, you and ronnie you know Radioed out. radioed out that hey we weren't planning on doing this but we found this um 
found this little bird with her wings laid out. She'd lost, I think, most of her body weight, mm-hmm. and um, she was going to starve to death. So we're going to take her out. Is that okay with you? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I think you're right in that. Like the first transformative moment for me was speaking truth to power and doing that action at Louis Vuitton. But this was the second most like transformative moment for me. I think there's something about open rescue that just it's like consciousness changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I just remember I remember holding her in my arms and I just what, even, what do you remember about first seeing her? Because like she was pretty fucked up. Yeah, that was, that was a hand and bad. Shape. So I mean, it's it's so dark. I'm I'm getting kind of like teary eyed because but I, I'll get to that point. But um, it was so dark we couldn't see. So she was wrapped in a towel. I just remember just uh, you know being really careful. There's a clip of this you handing her over to me and just being like, make sure she's really careful. But her head was like you know sulking. <laughs> And she was too weak to hold yeah, her head up, poor baby. Yeah, and, and I think, like, it just, like, hits your heart. Like, I mean, who even, you know, cares about just one of thousands? And yeah. she was just going to die. And, yeah, that moment is just, it's really powerful to think back to that and just think, like, we we saved her life. And, um, yeah, I just remember, I, I got a good look at her in the car. And I remember she, like, um, she put her head in my... Um, she just wanted to hide, you know, mm-hmm. and because all they've seen their entire lives is darkness. And I just remember her wanting to go back into the darkness. And um, I mean, it's just it's in those little moments you realize, like, we've seen thousands of them. But, you know, just like that little desire to like want want darkness. And yeah, I mean, it was very the way I would describe it is consciousness changing. It just it changed me forever. Mm-hmm. In every in every way, open rescue changed me, and that moment changed me because when you've gone to the front lines, you can't you can't unsee what you've seen, but you want to keep going back and you want to keep breaking the barrier in every hardship in life. And I think open rescue and saving May did that for me. Yeah. And, and May was, go ahead. And in the car, she remember she laid an egg. She did. Or like I remember we found an egg. I don't even remember this. I yeah, there's you, a, but I don't remember. There's a video, and mm. we're like, oh my God, she laid an egg. And I, because, mm. or we were just like, kind of shocked that it happened. But, um, like, yeah, which e- is one of the reasons some of these hens are so fucked up. Exactly. It, it takes such a toll on their body to lay eggs every single day. I mean, in the wild, natural hens will lay maybe 20, 25, 30 eggs a year. And these hens, I mean, the reds, May was a red hen, you know, some version of, of, basically a variant of what's called the Rhode Island red. I mean, not exactly Rhode Island red and traditional egg laying facilities have leghorns, white hens, but these cage free facilities, because the leghorns will literally tear each other to pieces. And so do the reds too, because they're climbing all of each other. They're fighting for space, for food, for water. You know, they use a different breed called red hens, you know, or various type of red hens. Um, they probably lay like 250 to 300 eggs. Leghorns will lay, lay over 300. So there it takes a huge toll on their bodies. Yeah. But yeah, when we found her and you can go, Look up Truth Matters DX if you want to see the original video footage. She was messed up. Yeah. She, she was too weak to stand. She was collapsed on the ground in, in a litter, like surrounded by feces. She had probably been eating feces to survive for quite some time. And we took her out mostly just as an act of mercy. I actually, I mean, chickens are tough as nails. They're extremely tough animals. You've got to be to survive that environment. But even as tough as they are, I was not confident she was going to make yeah. it. We took her out. Um... Yeah. And she had a few beautiful months and, you know, bringing her... A year. She had a year. 
Yeah, a year. A full year, yeah. Bringing her back to life was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, another, you know, just a magical experience. Seeing, like, seeing, seeing rescued animals do things for the first time yeah. is, uh, yeah, it's, it's like how many people can, well, how many people can say that they've done that? But it's so amazing to be able to see her have that experience when she's walking on grass and looking up and being like, there's this whole new world out here. Mm-hmm. And it was so beautiful to, to be able to be part of that process. Yeah. It's, it is beautiful. To and bathe her. Mm-hmm. You know, we bathed her and we hand fed her for, for I think a few weeks cause she was too weak to reach food and water herself. And she was not even able to walk. But it was, I mean, it was pretty amazing how quickly she recovered, frankly, you know, within two weeks. She was never a normal hen, you know, she yeah. was something about what happened to her in that farm broke her. But, um, and so she always had to be segregated from the other hens, but she was a beautiful little, little being who had one joyous year to match two years of, of pain and terror. In many ways, that experience, that transformation is, is what we're trying to do with these court cases. And as powerful as it was to save that one animal, if we can show people what we did for these animals, and, and the same thing unfolded in Petalma Poultry that day. There was one hen, just one, Rose, who was not able to walk, who was among many who were dying, who were slowly starving to death, dying of dehydration, who had, again, gaping holes. They were literally rotting while they were still alive. Rose was the one who got out. She got about a year of life, too. And that transformation you and I went through, that consciousness-shifting experience, is exactly what our entire system would go through. Yeah. And this case in Sonoma County that we hope we get your support on is a way to do this. Because the courtroom for all of American history, and frankly, in the history of human civilization, even going back to Socrates and Plato, the trial of Socrates, these trials have been the make or break moments, not just for the individual defendants, but for our entire civilization and society. They're moments where we scrutinize what is right and what is wrong. What do we believe and what do we not believe? And what is true and what is false? Yeah. And we know that when people see someone like May or Rose come back from life, that people will not just side with, but they will fight for life and against torment and death. Yeah. But to get there, we need your help. And, and that's why I'm asking everybody, you know, in whatever way you can help. And everyone's going to sacrifice in different ways. Not everyone's going to be on the front lines. Not everyone's going to be there to hand feed May when she comes back to life. Not everyone's going to be there in the courtroom necessarily, either as a defendant facing felony charges or as just a supporter who's there to show your, your physical support for this movement. But you can be there for the animals in some way. And, and this is one of those crucial moments, not just for us, but for all the animals we're trying to save. Because if we do go through this consciousness shift, if we do convince a jury, and ultimately even a judge and even the prosecutors, and frankly, even the factory farm owners themselves, to feel the tears that we felt, when we saw May in the condition she was in, to feel the pain we felt when we saw Rose unable to walk, being carried out by Susanna on that day in Petaluma Poultry. Susanna was the young activist who was allowed to walk out with one hen from Petaluma Poultry. They took all the rest. They killed all the rest, even though all of them, they were sick and they would not have been able to survive without medical care. But every single one of those hens had a chance at life that was taken from them by the government on that day. We want to give them that chance. And we believe that when people see these animals in the dejected state they're in, we want to give them that chance because there's something profoundly disturbing about someone who has had everything taken from them. There's also something profoundly beautiful about seeing someone who has had everything taken from them given a chance, one small chance for the first time in their life. There's nothing more beautiful in the world. And that's what we want to give all the animals. 
So let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Any final thoughts before we go into court in a couple of weeks? Yeah, I was just thinking about how, you know, in many ways our work is just uh, freeing ourselves and others of these delusions that have mm-hmm. been um, placed upon us, these filters that we talked about. And I think people already know. So what we're doing is help them remember. And, and help I hope ourselves I've, too. And help ourselves remember too. So I hope everyone remembers because these truths are, we know, I mean, it's, these animals are not property. Mm-hmm. They're, they're persons. And I, I truly believe that we will um, succeed in helping people remember that because they already know. We've got to remember. We have to remember who we really are. We're not cruel tyrants of this planet. We're animals too. Yeah. And we have a special gift among the animals, the gift of empathy and compassion. So do some other animals. And it's time for us to show the world who we are, which is creatures of love, not hate, not violence. And that's what we're going to do. And I hope you join us. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Priya. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Priya is an amazing person, and and please support her and all of us as we go through these trials. But I wanted to thank Ronnie Rose, who in many ways has been a a co-executive producer in this podcast and has been driving me and motivating me to continue to do these. And we have a volunteer team that's been amazing, including Shalola Fakis, who's helped out with transcripts, Crystal Heath, who's been doing a lot of the audio support, Louis Bernier, and Julie Waldrop. And um, if you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a friend and subscribe at whatever app that you subscribe to podcasts. Thanks so much.